I want you to think with me about your favorite meal. Maybe just one other. There's a lot of pressure when I say, what was your favorite meal ever? What was one of your favorite meals? Can you, can you think of one? Maybe more than one meal that comes to mind when you think about a, a, a favorite meal? Go ahead and uh, turn to the person next to you real quick and just s- tell them something about that, that meal. What made that meal so special? Was it what you had to eat, who you were with? What was it that made your favorite meal your favorite meal? Go ahead and tell them real quick. Just uh, not to put you on the spot or anything, but I'm totally putting you on the spot. I'm guessing... I'm guessing that when you think about the best meal you ever had, I'm guessing that it was about more than just the food you ate. I'm guessing when you recall the best meal you've had or your favorite meal ever, the food might have been good, but that's not necessarily what makes it the best. You probably have other memories attached to the food that make that experience one of your favorites. Right? So you think about the food, but you think about who you ate the food with as well, probably many of you. You think about what occasion you were celebrating. The occasion can make the food better. The wine can make the food better. Can I get an amen from the congregation? So who you're with, what you're celebrating can make the meal you eat the best. You can have an incredible, flawless culinary experience, but if you're alone and sad and uh, with nothing to celebrate, you're not going to remember that as a best meal, more than likely. So um, when we think about your favorite meal or the best meal you've ever had, um, what do you attach those memories to? For Jesus' disciples, in the years following his life, death, and resurrection, when they're learning to live their lives and lead the church without him, The best meal they ever had was the Last Supper. The best meal they could remember was this bread and this cup. Now, it wasn't pleasant when they shared the meal for the first time. You get that? So sometimes when you have a meal the first time or you have an experience, it's unpleasant. But then something happens later and you recall it differently. You recall it differently based on what's happened between then and now. The same was true for the disciples. They loved this meal, the Last Supper, so much that they shared it together every time they gathered as the church. And they told new Christians to do the same thing. And every time they gathered and shared communion, they would say the same words. They would repeat the words that Jesus said to them the night of the Last Supper so that they could remember and recall these precious memories. The night of, it was intense. Jesus was sweating bullets. Jesus knew this was it. And Judas betrayed him, and Peter was accused of, you know, going to deny him, things like that. And so it wasn't pleasant when it happened, but the disciples remembered it uh, differently as time went on. And they ask us to do the same. Jesus says, come and remember me. I think, honestly, guys, for most of us, communion isn't something super sacred. For most of us. It's pretty rare that I hear someone after a service say, you know, communion really touched my life today. 
I don't think I've ever heard that, actually. I hear that sometimes about worship music. I hear that sometimes about sermons. And I think those are the things we think of most when we think of church. You don't go tell your friends, I've got this awesome church. We do communion. But I'm thinking maybe we should. And I bear some of that responsibility. I want us to, to think more intentionally about what we're doing here. Because otherwise, it's just an awkward ritual. Which I think most of us, if we're honest, would say one of the first words that come to mind when we think of communion is awkward. Especially the way we do it. You know, it's like drive-through communion. Where, one person liked that joke. Where, thank you. See me after the service, I've got more. Um, where you walk through a line and some stranger hands you a piece of bread and you dip it in a cup and you just try not to mess up. Because everybody's watching and what if you do it wrong? Nothing else, I'm afraid, is going through most of our minds when communion is happening other than let's just go through the motions and get through this. But there should be so much more going on emotionally, intellectually, while we're receiving communion. Yeah, we have to do it the way we do it most weeks for logistic, logistical purposes. But I hope that we can get beyond the logistical nightmares of it and uh, connect with Jesus the way we should at, at communion. I know awkward things are going to happen, and they have, and it's always hilarious to see people reacting to the awkward moments of communion. And one of the most common things that happens is someone comes forward, and they are given the piece of bread, and they just eat it before they get to the juice. And then they get to the juice, and they're stuck in this momentary conundrum. And it's always fascinating to see the, the wheels turning in their heads. Like, it says something about your character, how you respond in a moment like that, right? Because you're supposed to dip the bread in the cup, and uh, everybody's watching. And so I've seen people do the pull-out method, where, you know, like, uh, and I'm like, no, 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 let's not, uh, let's not do that. Uh, I try to preempt that with another piece of bread. You know, I'm a pro at that. I watch closely, and they try to do this number. I'm like, nope, not going to happen here. Other people, especially Catholic people, try to go for the sip. The sip of the cup, which I have since I was little, had this pet peeve about drinking after people, and so that's an absolute no-no for me. I mean, we love you and accept you under all circumstances, unless you sip from our cups <laughs> at the story. That's the only thing that gets you excommunicated. You can murder the person sitting next to you. We'll serve you communion. But man, don't sip from this cup. <laughs> you're not going to be welcome back. You know? um, and so I think we often think about communion in terms of doing it right. I hope that we, from this point on, will learn to think of communion more in, in terms of uh, uh, thinking about the right things, remembering the right things every time we come to this meal, because there's so much more to this than just religious ritual. So much more to this than just a convenient way to end every service. And so we hope that every worship service will actually culminate and climax uh, at the table, at, at the moment of communion. That's why we anchor our whole community around this symbol of communion. Okay? When I think about my uh, favorite uh, meals, my, the best meals I've ever had, almost all of them, uh, if I made a list, almost all of them uh, relate back to the dinner table at my grandmother's house. Uh, my grandmother, uh, her name was Virgie, and she died a year ago this Saturday, and I still don't know why 
uh, God allows grandmas to be taken away because uh, it just seems unfair. You've lost a grandparent. Um, you know what I mean. Um, and I miss her. Her mind left this world before she did with dementia and Alzheimer's, and so it was a painful process, but I, I miss her terribly. Um, every time I would call her, she would say, when are you going to get back to Texas, boy? Because I was in Kansas City, right, for 13 years, and I was the, like one of the first for my family to ever leave the Republic, as she called it. And um, she said, you're going to turn into a Yankee up there, boy. I said, Virgie, this is Missouri. It's a southern state. We're on your side. And she said, it ain't Texas. You know, that's what she said. It ain't Texas. I'm so glad that I got back home before. Even if her brain was gone, I felt like uh, there was something good, something good about coming back to Texas before she died. She grew up in the Great Depression. And like many Depression-era children, she grew up with nothing. She would get an apple for Christmas. Or if she was really lucky, she and her siblings got a pair of shoes. She usually got an older sibling's pair of shoes for Christmas. And uh, that upbringing shaped her. I mean, she worked hard to save up money, but do you think she ever put it in a bank? No, that money went in Virgie's mattress. That's where that money went. And she believed in defending herself. She slept with a, a weapon under her pillow at night, and sometimes it was a machete. If I'm honest, she slept sometimes with a machete under her pillow. The very first revolver I ever saw I found in her glove compartment of her Dodge Ram Charger when I was looking for a stick of gum. I was a little kid, and I found a revolver in my grandmother's glove compartment. That was a surprise. Hashtag gun safety. Virgie, I hope you're listening. <laughs> she made us call her Virgie, by the way, because she was too young and pretty to be a grandma, she said. So we had to call her Virgie. Virgie Merle is what we called her uh, when we were kids growing up, which was always weird, but we got used to it. She married a Methodist preacher, my grandpa, Ray, who died uh, before I was born. He died when my mom was 11. I never met him. I was named after him. My middle name is Ray. I mean, half of East Texas' middle name is Ray. But mine is for a reason, right? Um, and so um, I was named after him, and, uh, and she loved him. But when he died, she was left a single mother of three girls. She actually had four girls. One of them, Ania Sue, died when she was three years old from a reaction from penicillin that her doctor gave her. A three-year-old daughter lost. And I look at Virgie and I think about the pain that she had to overcome for the rest of her life. And while she raised the other three girls, she told every doctor they ever had that all three of them were allergic to penicillin. She didn't even know for sure, but she wasn't going to take that chance again. She was a caretaker. When her husband died, she took three jobs. She wasn't one to take charity from anyone. But she worked at the Red River Army Depot where they made munitions for war. And then she worked as a substitute teacher at the Red Lick, that was my town, Red Lick Elementary School. And then she checked groceries at the Price Low over in Texarkana. Price Low, for those of you unfamiliar, was Piggly Wiggly's top competition. In Texarkana, it was Price Low and Piggly Wiggly neck and neck for grocery excellence in Northeast Texas. She did all three. She would drive like a bat out of hell in her Dodge Ram Charger from one to the other. And then she'd make it to church on Sundays. My family had Sunday dinner 
at her house every weekend. And every dinner at Virgie's table was like a family reunion. We almost always had the same food. Deep fried pork chops. Not in olive oil either, let me tell you. <laughs> Deep fried vegetables, because how else do you eat vegetables? Mashed potatoes, which she called cream taters. And black eyed peas or purple hull peas from her garden. Every time, the same. And it didn't really matter if you got tired of that meal, because it wasn't really about the food that was served. I mean, that was amazing. But it was about Virgie and her table and our family coming together after a week. And one week after the next, we would take communion together, breaking bread. I remember those meals so fondly because of what they meant to me uh, and my uh, family. The meal that we call communion, it's not about the food that we eat. It's about what it means. It's about a family coming together after a week or more of being apart and coming together and, and reaffirming our vow to love and take care of each other and to be in love with God together. And I know it's confusing because we say things like this body is the, this bread is the body of Christ and this cup is the blood of Christ. And for those of you who don't know anything about the church or communion, you're like, well, do they really think that this is the physical? Like this is, are we cannibals? You know, what's going on here? That's not how we look at it. It's not, it's not the physical body and blood of Jesus. We believe that Jesus is present when we take communion together, we believe that there is a particular grace that we receive when we come together and share this meal and remember Jesus um, together. We believe that uh, it's a powerful symbol of God's grace. But we do not take this meal in a vacuum. For a thousand years before Jesus even walked the earth, a meal like this was already being shared as a ritual among God's people, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. This is an extension of the Jewish Passover meal, which for a thousand years before Jesus and in the 2,000 years since, the Jewish people celebrate Passover every year. And they do it in the same way, and they say the same words. It's a ritual. It helps them to remember who they are, whose they are, where they come from, and what's important. And Jesus was a Jewish man. He celebrated Passover as well. And every year, the head of household would say the same words over and over again with Jewish Passover. It goes all the way back to when the Jews were Hebrew slaves in Egypt, living under awful conditions, 18-plus-hour workdays under the hot African sun, doing unimaginable things, physical, manual labor. Pharaoh was a hard-hearted man, and he came down hard on the Hebrews because they were multiplying, and he was threatened by them. And so Pharaoh ordered every male infant, the moment he was born, he was to be cut down, executed, killed. A baby. And every day, Jewish mothers would pray that their baby would be a girl so they could have a child to hold on to. And half of them were left in tears. It was infanticide. It was a threat of genocide. The Hebrew people were going to be wiped off the map because the Jewish women, they, they would just be taken as concubines or slaves by the Egyptian men. 
There was going to be no more Hebrew people left. But God had a plan for these people, and he had a plan to save the whole world, you and me included, through these people. And God's plans were not going to be thwarted by this selfish, egocentric, stubborn Pharaoh. And so God sent the plagues to Pharaoh as warnings. Pharaoh, these are my people. Let them go, or you'll face the consequences. One after the other, he sent plagues, ten of them. It started with water that turned blood red, and all the fish in Egypt died. And then there were, uh, there, there were lice that infested people's homes and hair and clothes and everything. There, there was a plague of flies that covered and swarmed the whole land. The livestock got sick. Many of the livestock died during one of the plagues. There was a thunderous hail that fell down on Egypt from the skies. One after the other, there was, there was darkness that covered the land. And every time God would send Moses to Pharaoh saying, are you listening now? Pharaoh, can, can, can you let my people go now? And every time Pharaoh, who was hard of heart and hard-headed, stubborn, he was his own God very, in a very real, literal way. Pharaoh believed he was God and not Yahweh, the God of Israel. So he wasn't going to have it. He wasn't going to listen. Even though the world was falling apart around him, he wasn't going to listen. Even though people were suffering, Pharaoh was going to stick to his guns because Pharaoh was God. Then there was the 10th plague, which involved the loss of every firstborn from every Egyptian household. Some people look at that plague and go, wow, what kind of a God does that? What kind of a Mean, vindictive, bloodthirsty God is this in the Old Testament. Can't we just flip ahead to the New Testament where God is all about candy and rainbows and hope and and where God is like a Hallmark card just gift wrapped for us to open? Can't we just talk about the New Testament God and skip all the stuff in the Old? I'm telling you guys, they're one and the same. And this God that we love, Old Testament and New, this God is love. And look, Sometimes when you love someone enough, sometimes love will look like mercy. Sometimes love will sound like a Hallmark card. Other times when you're dealing with someone who is a committed narcissist and who insists on going his own way instead of of surrendering to the will of God for his life or for the lives of others, sometimes love looks like justice. So we have mercy on the one hand. We have justice on the other, both our love. God saw Hebrew baby boys being taken out the moment they were born, and he said, I've had enough. This is your chance to relent. And Pharaoh said, no, I am God and you are not. And I don't know how else to say it, guys. When you know what the will of God is, and you've heard the will of God for the world, for your life, and you do something else because you are God and God is not, you do it for long enough, there will be consequences. Because that's what love looks like. Some of you have had to love someone that way before. Some of you parents know exactly what I'm talking about. So you can sit back and criticize what happened in Egypt, but really it takes a certain kind of elitism and arrogance to claim you know better. God says this plague is coming. And he tells the Hebrew slaves in Egypt before the, night, the day before that that plague was to come that night, he said, take a lamb, each family take a lamb, 
Slaughter the lamb, smear some of its blood on the doorpost so that I know that you are my people. And every house that has the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, I will pass over that night and go to the next house to bring the tenth plague. That's where the term Passover comes from. And every family was supposed to, the day before that Passover, every family was supposed to roast that lamb over an open fire. And if your family couldn't afford its own lamb, you were supposed to go to the, the house next door and go in together and buy a lamb together and, and share it family style that day. You were also supposed to eat some bread. And one of the, uh, one of the uh, hallmarks of the uh, Passover meal was unleavened bread. It is unleavened bread still, even today. And where that comes from is that when Pharaoh heard what was going on with the 10th plague and he, you know, people were grieving and screaming, the cries were heard throughout the land, Pharaoh told Moses, get yourself and your people out of here immediately. And so the people rushed to pack their things, but the bread was still in the oven. It didn't have time to rise, and they weren't going to leave their bread there in the ovens in Egypt, so they took it out before it could rise, and they ran for their lives. And that's why, even today, Hebrew people break unleavened bread at Passover. But every year they shared the same meal. One year after they escaped Captivity in Egypt, they gathered in the wilderness where they were wandering aimlessly in the desert, and they said the same story that they would say for the next thousand years before Jesus. They would take the bread, and they would break it, and they would say, this is the bread of our affliction. Every year, the head of household, this is the bread of our affliction. Our fathers ate it in the desert. This is the bread of our affliction. Our fathers ate it in the desert. For a thousand years, they said it a thousand times. This is the bread of our affliction. Our fathers ate this in the desert. Even when they went into the promised land, they did the same ritual, the same thing happened. Same tradition. They ate bread and they remembered their slavery. They ate bread and they remembered their poverty. So fast forward a thousand years from Egyptian slavery to the life of Jesus. And Jesus' life is about to come to an end and he knows it. And they're on their way, he and his disciples, into the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus knows what's about to happen to him in Jerusalem. That's all he can think about. And his disciples say, hey, we know you're preoccupied with whatever you got going on, but it's Passover. What are we going to do for Passover? And that's what happens in Mark chapter 14. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can open to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. This is also on your study guides that you were given for today's sermon, and it's going to be on the screens. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 16. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 16. On the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of his house, of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Every year at Passover meal, it was exactly the same script. There were always four glasses of wine that the, uh, the, the head of household would take and drink, and others would too. And each glass of wine represented one of the four promises that the people remembered at Passover. 
The first of the four uh, promises was uh, rescue from Egypt. There it is, rescue from Egypt. The second one was freedom from slavery. The third promise was redemption by God's power. And the fourth was renewed relationship with God. After each promise was spoken, they would drink one glass of wine. That sounds like a little more fun than what we do on Sunday mornings, but we can change the ritual. I'm all about it. Uh, we just got to change the rules with the Mother Church. St. Luke's won't allow us to use wine, so I'll leave that to y'all. Y'all can fight that fight, and I'll just be on the sidelines because I don't want to get fired. Amen. Hallelujah. All right, good. So four glasses of wine, four promises. Jesus is presiding as head of household over the Passover meal with his disciples in this upper room. And after they've taken the third glass of wine, after they've talked about the third promise, the redemption by God's power, this is what happens Next, pay attention to this part. In Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to 25, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. So, what happened here? For us, it's commonplace. We say those words every week. That was the first time Jesus' disciples, lifelong Jews, good Jewish guys, that's the first time they had ever heard those words before. At a Passover meal, you say the same thing every time, Jesus. We know you're worried about something. You're sweating bullets over there, Jesus, but this is your line. This is the bread of our father's affliction. This is the bread of our affliction. Our fathers ate this in the desert. That's what you say, Jesus. Don't deviate from the script, Jesus. We've always done it this way, Jesus. Jesus says, no, this body, this, is, this bread is my body. It's broken for you. Take and eat it. And he said, this cup, he said, this is not the blood of the lamb. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you. Now, for us, it's not a big deal. But I got to think, in context, there was total silence around the table. Or maybe, you know, they're whispering to each other, what's wrong with him? Why is he deviating from the script? Like, that's not what we say. And I don't think it even occurred to them until the very end of the meal when they were supposed to bring the lamb out. <clears throat> Passover meal was never intended to be a vegetarian meal. Hallelujah for meat eaters in the world. They were supposed to have a lamb. And maybe the disciples thought he was roasting it out back or something. They hadn't seen the lamb, but that's just what you did. That's what they had always done their whole lives. The last course of the meal was supposed to be the lamb. But Jesus gets to the end of the meal and there's no lamb. What kind of a Passover is this, Jesus? There's no lamb. They'd be like me going to Virgie's house and not having pork chops on the table. Like, what's going on here? What's wrong? What did I do wrong? You know what I mean? Like, how do we offend you? Where's the lamb? Must have been then that it clicked in their minds. What John the Baptist said when Jesus came to the River Jordan. He said, behold, the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. It must have occurred to them. What the prophets meant when they talked about a lamb being led away for slaughter to cancel the sins of all humankind. It must have occurred to them why they were in Jerusalem and why he was sweating bullets. It must have occurred to them right then in this incredible moment of awakening that Jesus was the fulfillment of a thousand Passovers. Jesus' blood was the ultimate fulfillment of the meal they had commemorated every year since their slavery in Egypt. 
Jesus was the completion of it. He was the perfection of it. <clears throat> no lamb was needed. A lamb was at the table, and his name was Jesus. When we come to the table, we're supposed to remember him. Tim Keller is a great pastor in New York City. He said it this way. I love this comparison between the Hebrew uh, Passover and what we celebrate as Christians. He says, imagine you, were, imagine you were in Egypt just after the first Passover. If you stopped Israelites in those days and said, who are you and what is happening here? They would say, I was a slave under the sentence of death, but I took shelter under the blood of the lamb and escaped that bondage. And now God lives in our midst and we are following him to the promised land. That is exactly what Christians say today. If you trust in Jesus' sacrifice, the greatest longings of your heart will be satisfied on the day you sit down for that eternal feast in the promised kingdom of God. Whenever we come here today, we remember that we once were slaves too. We once lived in bondage and fear. But by the blood of the Lamb, we were freed. We were set free to live a new life, to have a new hope to trust in this God that we are in relationship with him again. Jesus says, every time that you come to this table, remember, remember who you are. Remember me, he says. Three facets to that that I just want to cover really quickly, and then we'll continue to worship and commune. Three things we're called to remember. When you come to the table, there should be three things on your mind. The first thing is that you remember Jesus' scars. <clears throat> You remember the sacrifice that Jesus endured on the cross on our behalf. And I know that's religious speak. I hope that many of you were here on Good Friday. If you missed this Good Friday service, come to the next year's Good Friday service where we talk exactly and in detail about the sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf. To leave the comfort of heaven where he sat with God on the throne and to come and walk among us, teaching us a better way, making this life that we share possible and then dying a brutal, humiliating death on a cross. The Bible says that death that he died, that pain that he endured, was symbolic of all the weight, of all our sin, all our shame, from the past, the present, and the future. All of it was preemptively forgiven by Jesus' act on the cross. What that means is that the worst thing you've ever done or the worst thing you ever will do in the future, the worst thing you do this afternoon when you get home has already been forgiven. The cross was a preemptive strike of the grace of God setting you free before you even knew you had chains on. You're already free because of Jesus' sacrifice. You may not know it, you might still be self-incarcerating. You might still be self-destructing. But I'm telling you, you're already free. All you have to do is acknowledge the freedom Jesus gives you, and you're free. You remember Jesus' scars and what they mean. Second, when you come to the table, you remember this family that Jesus has pieced together. I like to think of the, fam of the church as a family that works not all your families work. Some of your families have let you down. Some of your families embarrass you. Some of your families disappoint you. Some of you come from good families, and that's great, but I'm telling you, the family that matters most to those who follow Jesus is the family Jesus puts together. And he told the people following him, he said, call yourselves brothers now, brothers and sisters, because you're one. And that was the miracle of the early church. That's what made the early church grow so much. People saw 
the church growing, and they said, these people are not all alike. These people are supposed to hate each other. The people calling themselves Christians are natural enemies. They're Longhorns and Aggies, you know. They're Democrats and Republicans. They're liberals and conservatives, you know. And they're coming together sharing one meal. They have nothing in common, nothing in common except the blood of the Lamb. Nothing binds us together except for the love of God in Jesus Christ. And because of that, we are a family. We take baptismal vows to care for each other, share each other's joys, share each other's burdens, raise each other's children, and share life together. This is more than just something that happens on Sunday between 11 and 12. This is a family that works, a family that lasts, a family that will never forsake you. That's what the church is intended to be. And when we come together around this table, it should be like a family reunion. We remember the family Jesus pieces together. Third, and finally, we remember God's promises. The promise of God is that you are an heir to his throne. Even in all of your mess, even in all of your grief, all the ways that you've been like Pharaoh, hard-hearted, hard-headed, stubborn, you've been your own God. Jesus says, look, because of the cross, it's okay. We can be okay again. You can be a son of God again. You can be a daughter of God again. Brothers and sisters, forgiven and free, royalty of God's kingdom living here on earth. God's promise is that you are forgiven and you are free. In light of that promise, when we come to the table, there should always be a time of self-examination because God's promises are so good and true. His grace is so complete. You do not want to take it for granted. There will be consequences for taking God's mercy for granted and coming to the table without first examining your own heart, without first examining the life that you're living, you should not leave this table still committing the same sins that you came committing. There should be change. Why? Not because you hope God accepts you, but because God has already accepted you. And grace like this, mercy like this, that sets a table with your name on it, in spite of it all, that only deserves a response of transformation and life change. There should always be a time, even a moment before you come, where you confess and you try to get right with God again when you come to communion. There was one meal in particular at Virgie's table that I will never forget. It wasn't pleasant when it happened, but I remember it fondly. My cousin James is a couple of years older than me. And we always worried about him. If I'm honest, he was always kind of the loner of the family. He came from a tough nuclear family situation. Like his parents were great people. Um, but his dad, when, he was, uh, when his mom was pregnant with him, his dad was deployed to Vietnam and he spent a couple of uh, stints in Vietnam, and he came home a different man. Completely different than when he left. Before he left Vietnam, he was bright, he had a future, he had a good head on his shoulders, he knew where he was going in life. When he came back, he was a shell of his former self. He kept odd hours, he couldn't be in large crowds of people, he was addicted and distant. And it just kind of messed with James when he was 
being brought up, you know? And so James always was kind of a loner. We always worried about him. We always worried about his grades, and we always worried about his future. What is, what's he going to become, you know? Virgie especially worried about James. Virgie loved us, man. She worried about him, which is why we were all so proud, but especially Virgie was proud when James got a job at the local community college, Texarkana College. James landed a job in the finance office, and he was doing good, man. For like months, he was going to work on time, and he was making good money, and he was doing all right. You know, we were all so proud. Like, look what James is, look at the odds he overcame, man. And then he came home early from work one day with tears in his eyes, and we knew something was wrong. And some money had gone missing in the finance department, and James was the culprit. They caught him red-handed. Thousands of dollars. And if he didn't come up with it, they were going to prosecute him. He had 24 hours. No one in my little rural family had that kind of cash laying around. Except Virgie. You know where it was? In her mattress. She gladly gave him the money to get him off the hook, but she was so heartbroken and so disappointed. It wasn't about the money for her. I mean, I'm sure it hurt to give that kind of money away overnight, but she told him, this is not a gift, this is a loan. You're going to work to pay this back. Boy, you better get familiarized with my lawnmower <laughs> because you're going to be cutting my grass a while, you know. She made sure he knew that. But she was just heartbroken that he would have done something like this. This is something that sticks with you. And she knew that he was going to have to fight to get past this. The next meal after that happened that we shared at Virgie's house, she clanged those pots and pans a little bit more than usual when she was making that meal. You knew she was angry. And James and his little brother and I and a couple of our aunts and uncles, we sat around the table waiting for food to be served, just kind of staring awkwardly at each other, wondering, how mad Virgie is. James especially sat there completely sullen, just like he'd seen a ghost, you know, just completely face flushed and afraid, really. Ashamed, I guess. Virgie came and served the meal. It was always the same. Fried pork chops, cream taters, uh, usually fried okra, and some kind of uh, purple whole peas or black-eyed peas. Always the same. And she set out the spread, family style, and we said grace, and we began to load up our plates, all of us like we had always done, except for James. Whenever a plate would cross his path, he would just keep passing it. And we kept saying, James, why don't you eat something? Why don't you eat something? He said, I'm not hungry. I'm just not hungry. I don't have an appetite. And I looked down the table. Virgie is sitting at the head of the table. James is sitting right across from me. And Virgie always sat at the head of the table because she was the head of household at our Passover meals. And she was staring at James like with laser beams coming out of her eyes, just this intense stare at her grandson. And after a moment of staring at him, watching him just bathe in self-pity, she got up and walked around the table and she scooped up some mashed potatoes with a serving spoon and she plopped them down on his plate and she pointed her bony finger at his face and she said, eat your damn cream taters. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. She said, eat. And I can't help thinking about the night that Jesus shared that meal that was not, that was not a pleasant scene. I can't help thinking that Peter and the others, they didn't have much of an appetite that night. 
And I can't help thinking that when Jesus said, take this bread, he didn't say it, you know, all solemn and holy, take this bread and eat. He said, eat your damn bread. Eat with me. Because when we eat together, it's a reminder that we're okay. And no matter what happened, we can be good again. That's what Virgie was saying to James. That's what Jesus was saying to his disciples, especially to Peter that night. And even Judas was there. We can be okay again. We can make this right. Just eat with me. Take this bread. Eat with me. When we come here, he says the same thing to us. He says, you're welcome at my table. I want you in my house. Let's break bread together. But don't sit there in your own self Pity, don't sit there and wallow in your shame and think that you've done too much and that we can't be good again. Come and eat with me. That's his invitation today. Eat your bread.